my intention is this morning to finish chapter 15. I've entitled my message this morning, A Missionary Sermon. I'd like to pick up reading in verse 18. I will not venture to speak. Now, Paul isn't just talking about speaking casually. In the verses right before this, we see that Paul, in the ESV, it says, pride. We might like the word exalt better, but Paul was exalting in what God had done through him. That's what he's speaking about here where he talks about to speak. He's talking about what he's exalting in, what he's boasting in, what he is excited and thrilled about that God has been doing through him. And he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He's realizing. We looked at this before. He's realizing this is God working through him. He hasn't done it in his own strength, in his own power, in his own abilities, his own anything. He realizes it is God and God alone. Now, he, he does recognize that he's working and laboring more than others. He's not blind to it. He is recognizing that God is working through him. He's not trying to ignore it. He's not trying with this false humility denying that it's happening. He recognizes very well that it's happening. And he's delighted. And he's thankful. He's glorying in it. Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And that's what Christ was doing through Him. The Gentiles are coming to submission to Christ. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum. Now where is Illyricum? I think most of you know where Jerusalem is. That is right there in Israel. You've got an idea about where that is from the way you guys are sitting. It's kind of down at the end of the Mediterranean. But where is Illyricum? Illyricum is what is today Albania. And I believe it used to be Yugoslavia. Basically, if you go up through Turkey and you go around the Aegean Sea, you've got the Grecian Peninsula there. And if... Thessalonica is right up there towards the top. If you go due west, all the way to the Adriatic, which is that little sea there between the Grecian Peninsula and the Italian Peninsula, it's all the way over there on that coast, due west of Thessalonica. It's actually a long way away from Jerusalem, and it's actually pretty close to Rome, to those he's writing to here. But he says that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the Gospel of Christ. He's fulfilled it. That's an absolutely amazing statement. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the Gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written... Those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. 
This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So he's saying to the Romans, look, I've desired to come to you, but I've been hindered from coming to you because I have an ambition to proclaim Christ, and that has kept me from coming to you. I've got a work here to do. I've got a ministry to fulfill, and up till now it hasn't been fulfilled, and thus I haven't been able to come to you because I've had something that I needed to do here for the Lord as He's been working through me, bringing these Gentiles to obedience. But now, something's changed now. He's fulfilled His ministry, but now since I am... This is amazing. I no longer have any room. What? Paul, we're talking about whole countries. Vast areas. But he doesn't have any room for work in these regions. Since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. He doesn't have any room there anymore, so he's going to go somewhere where he has room. And as he's going to somewhere where he has some breathing room, he hopes to go by way of Rome. And he says to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he says I don't want to just drop in, be on my way the next day. I, I want to spend a bit of time with you while I'm on my way to Spain. At present, however, now look, as much as his, as much as his ministry is done, and he doesn't have any more breathing room there, and he is, has this ambition to proclaim Christ where Christ hasn't been named, and he wants to go to Spain, as much as he has that ambition, as much as he has that desire, it's amazing that something interrupts him it's amazing to me this. He had such a compulsion to proclaim Christ that with all of his longings he couldn't go to Rome, but now with all of his longings to proclaim Christ where he isn't named, he is going to sidetrack, a huge sidetrack, a thousand miles to go to Jerusalem. At present, he says in verse 25, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia, the churches in Macedonia, you may be familiar with some of them. That would be Thessalonica, that would be Philippi, that would be Berea. Those are ones we know about. Achaia, we, we know of Corinth for certain. They've been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. I would stop right there. They owe it to them. Who owes who what? The Gentile Christians owe the Jewish Christians contribution, aid. Why? For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. You know what, you know what has struck me about that? It made me ask the question this. If that's what God is telling the Gentile Christians then, does that not apply to us now? I, I got looking at that and I thought, wait, if they owe it, if they owe it to them because of the spiritual blessings received by the Gentiles, and they owe it, I'm wondering, how does 2,000 years sort of wash away that responsibility from the Gentile churches? And as I was looking at it, I don't know that it does. In fact, it made me ask the question, 
in light of that text, would we want to be a church of Christ and get to the end of our days and we never really did any major thing or even a minor thing for the Jews? You think about that. You carry that one around with you. Just, just consider that. Verse 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Brethren, as I've said, I've entitled my sermon this morning a missionary sermon. This may, not, this may not strike you. I know a lot of times myself as well. I have heard Acts chapter 13 oftentimes is like one of the missionary texts. Or Matthew 28 being the missionary text. And that's not to take anything away from those texts or what we have to learn there. But it is really amazing to me how much we can learn about missions from Romans 15. It's, it's one of the most missions-oriented, missions-instructive, missions-rich chapters in our Bibles. And per personally, if you haven't been here long, um, you may not know this, but I love missions. And I want a church that's involved in missions. And I think that is the heart that Christ would have us to have. And maybe you don't know somewhat of the history here, but I came to Texas looking for a church involved in missions. Now there were other things that were a positive or advantageous to me coming here, but the thing I was looking for, the thing that burned in my heart, the thing Craig and I would sit there in his, in his living room week after week, Friday night after Friday night, with our hearts burning in me, it was missions. It was taking the message of Christ to the world. And I remember, I remember coming down here and I'm getting in the church and here's a church that holds to the doctrines of grace and they're baptistic and they're taking the Gospel to the nations. That's what my heart longed for. Longed for that. And you know, here we are ready to start a church it's three months before the, the beginning of this church. Paul Washer comes down there to, to Elmendorf. I'm listening to him. He's speaking on missions that Friday of the conference. And he says this statement. He said, I don't know of a single church that gives itself to foreign missions that has ever been abandoned by God. Now, I didn't need that extra fuel on the fire. But it left an indelible imprint in my mind. And as this church started... I was determined already, but that just added fuel to the fire. And we came in. Church held its first meeting. Our church started June 24, 2001. And I pulled out our church log book. Just four weeks later, I started keeping the church log 
the very first entry in our church log. Now I backtracked after I logged this in and, and I logged the events that happened around the, uh, the sending out of the 12 members there at community and I went back and did that. But the very first log I put in that log book reads this way. July 22, 2001, evening service. All present members unanimously agreed to and approved of the following financial decisions. Month, the first one, monthly support of Brother Pat Horner of Community Baptist Church of $100 for his missionary efforts to spread the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that may not sound like much, but let me tell you, in those days, we had four breadwinners in the church. We were very small. We were trying to scratch out an existence, but I knew one thing. I had a burning in my heart. We are supporting foreign missions. We are going to support the name of Christ Brethren, we have been given a commandment. It is an imperative by our risen Lord. It has not expired with the apostles of old. It is for us today. Christ is with us to the end of the earth and end of the age. If you don't know what I'm referring to, let me read it to you. Matthew 28:18. Don't turn there. Just listen to me. I want you to stay right there in, in Romans 15. All authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go. It's imperative. Go. And Christ doesn't say go alone. He says, look, all authority in heaven, all authority on earth, all authority has been given to me. Do you believe what we just sang? All these kingdoms are becoming His kingdoms. All the kings of this earth will bow down before Him. There is no false religion out there that will stand against our King. None. And He says, in all My royal majesty, in all My royal authority, He says, go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And you don't tack on at the end to the end of the age unless He means for us to carry out this mandate until He comes. Brethren, some of you have heard parts of this before, but it is well worth reciting. Charles Spurgeon, he read this in his study all alone. feel very much of the same thing in my own heart and soul. My ears seem to hear it as if Christ were then speaking it to me. I could realize His presence by my side. I thought I could see Him lift His pierced hand and hear Him speak as He was wont to speak with authority blended with meekness. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the all-glorious God. Oh, I would that the church could hear the Savior addressing these words to her now. For the words of Christ are living words, not having power in them yesterday alone, but today also. The injunctions of the Savior are perpetual in their obligation. They were not binding upon apostles merely, but upon us also, and upon every Christian does this yoke fall? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are not exempt today from the service of the first followers of the Lamb. Our marching orders are the same as theirs. And our captain requires from us obedience as prompt and pers 
perfect as from them. Oh, that His message may not fall upon deaf ears. Brethren, the heathen are perishing. Shall we let them perish? Did you hear what Matt said to us in the Sunday school? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God appeals to men through us. We are to beseech men in the name of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Do you know what that means? That means that if Christ were here, instead of sending His ambassador, that's what He would say to sinners. And is that not what He said when He walked this earth? Be reconciled to God. Brethren, the heathen are perishing. They're not reconciled to God. Shall we let them perish? His name is blasphemed. Shall we be quiet and still? The honor of Christ is cast into the dust, and His foes revile His person and resist His throne. Shall we as soldiers suffer this and not find our hands feeling for the hilt of our sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Our Lord delays His coming. Shall we begin to sleep or to eat or to be drunken? Shall we not rather gird up our loins of our mind and cry unto Him, Come Lord Jesus, come quickly? The scoffing skeptics of these last days have said that the anticipated conquest of the world for Christ is but a dream which is never to be accomplished. Is that not the voice we've heard? You guys have no hope on the east side. None. Where are you going there? It's a hopeless endeavor. These are the same ones Spurgeon heard speaking scoffing skeptics in his day. Never to be accomplished, they say. It is asserted by some that the superstitions of the heathen are too strong to be battered down by our teachings and that the strongholds of Satan are utterly impregnable against our attacks. Shall it be so? Shall we be content foolishly to sit still? Nay, rather let us work out the problem. Let us prove the promise of God to be true. Let us prove the words of Jesus to be words of soberness. Let us show the efficacy of His blood and the invincibility of His Spirit by going in the spirit of faith, teaching all nations, and winning them to the obedience of Christ our Lord. So said Spurgeon. Brethren, my aim is to stoke in this church a heated vision for world missions. As I do, my hope is, my hope has been that some of you would catch an ambition in your own souls would one day launch you out upon some people group of the Gospel of Christ. I mean, we just need to ask some simple questions. I mean, what is, what is missions like? How do we do missions? What place do we play in it? I play, you play. I mean, are we all missionaries? If not, how are those of us that are not missionaries to, to work this whole great commission out? I've got three points. The missionary ambition. Paul says in verse 20, you can't escape it there. And thus I make it my ambition. Brethren, there is a missionary God-given ambition. 
Second, my second point is missionary aid. You see that in verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. And third, the missionary appeal. You can see that there in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So let's look, brethren, at these three aspects. Ambition, aid, appeal. Brethren, the word ambition in verse 20, earnest striving. That's what ambitious is all about. That's what ambition is. To aim at something with intensity. To endeavor, to inspire to. God, help us, brethren. God, help us. The last thing we need on the mission field is any more missionaries with no ambition. God, give us men and women with ambition. Listen to me, young people. If you spend all day in bed, you sleep till noon, you haven't seen the sunrise, if you know more about Xbox and Facebook than you know about walking with Christ, if you can't fast for more than four hours, You're not burdened to pray for anything but God give you a husband or a wife. My friend, you're not fit for the mission field. Not even close. Let me tell you something. Those whom God takes and chisels out of the missionary stock are not such people. They're people of ambition. Not laziness, not half-heartedness. It's not the careless, the idle, the procrastinating, slow-moving, unenergetic who are bound for the mission field. It's the ambitious. Paul had ambition, folks. It was a heartfelt, gut-felt, real, soul-moving ambition. You simply cannot fritter the hours away here and then imagine some fantastic dream that you are somehow in some faraway place going to become the next Adoniram Judson or William Carey. As I was thinking about all this and I reached over and I pulled my Hudson Taylor, the first volume, the early years off the shelf, I opened it to remind myself what sort of holy ambition stirred that man. Hudson Taylor. Listen to this. At the age of 17 and a half years, Taylor's biographer, which I think was his daughter, tells us he was gripped with this thought that whatever might be involved, the future held but one thing for him. To do his Master's will. Young people, older people, is that it? Nothing between. You're sold out for the Master's will. Are you sold out? Nothing between. Or are you holding something back? People who hold things back are not the people for the, for the mission field. It's people sold out to His will to give up everything. Listen to this man. He was gripped with this thought. Whatever might be involved, he was in it to do the Master's will. Again, his biographer says, he was moved by desires he could not put into words 
He was moved by desires that could not be put into words. Something pulsated in that man's inner being. Desires, a passion, an ambition. It was simmering there. Listen, I read there, a pastor in Taylor's hometown somewhat sarcastically asked young Hudson how he planned to get to China. You know what his answer was? He said, I don't know. But that it seemed probable that he would need to do the same thing the 12 and the 70 had done. Well, now that's interesting. A missionary who actually thinks biblically when it comes to how to be sent somewhere. To go without purse or scrip. Obviously, he's quoting the old King James. That means to go without money. Without the money bag. Without the knapsack. Relying on Him who had sent Him to supply all His need. The pastor put his hand on Hudson's shoulder and said, Ah, my boy, as you grow older, you will become wiser than that. Such an idea would do very well in the days when Christ Himself was on earth, but not now. But let me tell you something. Ambition, missionary ambition overcomes discouragement, it overcomes obstacles, and it overcomes unbelief. Hudson Taylor went to China exactly like those original 12 and the 70 went out. And you know what Taylor said years later? I have grown older since then, but not wiser. I am more and more convinced that if we were to take the directions of our Master more fully as our guide, we should find them just as suited to our times and to those in which we, as to those in which they were originally given. Brethren, I went on to read Taylor's ambition. The biography says that went deep. From the first, he realized that a call to missionary work in China involved the beginning of true missionary life at home. You're going to go to the foreign mission field and you're not working out the life of a missionary here, then you're not qualified to go. That man who is no missionary here is no missionary there. It only gets harder there. Brethren, he was wont to say this. Voyage across the ocean, he said, often said in later years, does not make any man a soul winner. And his biographer says this about him. At home, before he went, he was a man of prayer. Not only was he a man of prayer, he encouraged other people to become more men and women of prayer. It said that he gave. He was sacrificial. And he encouraged others to give. He rose early every morning. Didn't sleep till noon. Didn't sleep till three. Didn't sleep till ten. He rose early. Each Sunday, he ministered to others. He didn't come to be ministered to and offended when people didn't say hello to Him. He came to minister to them. He didn't come and get all worked up and all bent out of shape and all agitated because somebody didn't say the right word to them. He came to give of Himself. During the week, He worked many hours. He sought warehouses, stables, and anywhere to be alone with God. He said, I am determined not to waste time, but to endeavor in all things to be about my Master's work. He sought out the impoverished and the suffering. He moved into a very poor neighborhood called Drainside. 
You know why it was called drain side? Because it was next to a drain. Not a drain in the floor. It was just basically a dirty, polluted ditch. He basically lived next to a raw, open sewage drain. At times he slept on boards. He gave up the woman whom he loved because she did not share his burden for China. It killed him. He ate food that his biographer called meager, living mainly on oatmeal and rice, and he gave the rest of his money away. Let me tell you something. These are only the fruits of his ambition. Brethren, I want you to feel the fire of his ambition. Taylor says, I cannot tell. I cannot describe how I long to be a missionary. There's ambition. There's fire in this man. Hudson Taylor, tell us why. He said, I want to carry the glad tidings to the poor, perishing sinners. For this, I could give up everything. Every idol, however dear, I feel as if I could not live if something is not done for China. And his biographer says, this was no mere emotion or superficial interest. It was the need of the perishing in heathen lands. It was that need and the very longing of Christ Himself when He said, them also I must bring. That was what had gripped. Taylor and held him fast. He believed that the heathen are perishing and that without a knowledge of the one and only Savior, they must be eternally lost. He believed that it was in view of this and because of Christ's infinite love that God had given His only begotten Son. These convictions moved him to the only life possible in view of such stupendous facts. A life wholly given to making that great redemption known, especially to those who had never heard Folks, that is a missionary ambition. That is it. And if you missed it right there, that is exactly what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 15. Look with me. Verse 20. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the Gospel not where Christ has already been named. Isn't that an interesting statement? Or phrase. Where Christ has been named. What does it mean to name Christ? Clearly Paul's ambition is to preach the Gospel of Christ where Christ has not been named so that upon preaching Christ, Christ will be named. What does that mean? It means exactly what we see in verse 18. You follow the whole thought here. Christ is named where Gentiles... You guys see it there? Christ is named where Gentiles are brought to obedience. Obedience to who? To what? To Christ. He is Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He says to the nations, I am Lord. That's the call. That's what we're being beseeched by the ambassadors of Christ. The Word of God coming through them, He is calling us Be reconciled. Be reconciled. That's what He says through us to sinners. Be reconciled. What does that mean? It it doesn't say sit back, do nothing, wait for the sovereign God to come down, mysteriously zap you and bring you into the kingdom. Tell you He gives you a new heart and you're born again. It says be reconciled to God. What does that mean? Reconciled. Matt talked about it. It's the idea of peace. It's the idea of the... The animosity between us 
Basically, folks, what it is, it's, it's appeal to you by the living Christ in all of His kingly majesty. He says to you in His authority, lay down your weapons and I will have mercy on you. Be reconciled. Surrender. And I will be most gracious to you. Folks, what Paul realized in verse 18 is these Gentiles coming to obedience is Christ doing this through Him to bring the Gentiles to obedience. That's what's happening. And Christ is named where the Gentiles coming in submission to Christ are then confessing Christ. And they're singing about Christ. And they're praying to Christ. And they're talking about Christ. And they're evangelizing Christ. That's where He's named. That's what He's got in mind here. Naming Christ means Christ's name is on people's lips. This is the ambition. Folks, this is the basics of missions. It's what it's all about. Christ working through us. Isn't that why He says, and lo, I am with you to the end of the world or the end of the age. I am with you. Why is that so important? Because no Gentiles come to obedience and Christ is not named unless Christ Himself works in us and through us. And Paul's ambition was to have Christ named where He is not named and have these Gentiles with Christ now being spoken on their lips in submission to Him. That is His ambition. That is what fired Him. That's what... <clears throat> and, and it's ama- Look, I just want to point out something about this ambition before I move on to the next point. Isn't it amazing that all the way from Jerusalem, all the way to Illyricum, he says there's no more room for me. He's got an ambition to preach Christ where Christ is not named. Let me ask you this. Do you think it likely that you could have gone in to somebody's home somewhere between Jerusalem and Illyricum and found somebody who didn't name the name of Christ? You think it's likely you would have found somebody that never heard the name? Hadn't yet heard the Gospel? Are you, is it likely there were whole towns and villages and, and cities that didn't even have a church? Is that likely? I mean, wouldn't we suppose that there were likely thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that didn't know the name of Christ and, and had never heard a clear presentation of the Gospel yet? Wouldn't you say that? Or you don't care? Or it doesn't matter? Or not not logical? Or... Every person did hear the Gospel, you think? I mean, what do you think? You look kind of map. That's a big area. What's interesting to me is that he could even say this. Paul, what are you talking about? There's obviously bunches of lost people there still. I mean, the fact is, didn't Christ say, few there be that find it? Even in places like Corinth, even though Christ said, I have many people there, weren't there bunches more that weren't converted yet? Even in Ephesus and some of the places, Corinth, uh, Thessalonica, where some of these bigger churches were, isn't it likely that there were still multitudes in the same city that hadn't come to Christ yet? I mean, what in the world 
There's no room for you. Paul, what are you saying? I think what we learn from this, look, I'll tell you this. There, there is a lot, there is a lot of, in the reform circles, there's a lot of perspective on missions that basically what missions is, is sending men who are pastors overseas somewhere. That is not the biblical picture that we get. What we find in the Scriptures is there is a distinction made between different types of gifts. And I would say this, there is a distinction between a pastor, there is a distinction between an apostle, there is a distinction between an evangelist. If you don't believe that, all you have to do is read Ephesians 4 sometime, you see that distinction is made. And I think what we find here is Paul is making exactly that distinction. When you take a pioneer missionary apostolic type with this type of ambition, what you find is that he is not a man that is simply called to evangelism. He is not just an evangelist. He's not the guy that's going to go down to the Alamo all the time and preach. He's a foundation layer. He's the kind of guy that says, you know what? There is no room. How can you say it, Paul? Because Paul's objective was never to reach every single person. Never! You can't argue that. It's not true. His objective was to go into virgin territory, lay the foundations for a church. Once a church was there, once a church was functioning, once they were confessing Christ, once there was a group of these Christian people coming together in obedience to Christ with His name on their lips, God raising up gifts in their midst, then He says, carry the baton. This area is for you. Now we have a faithful church. You send the emissaries out to this area. You send the evangelists out. You reach these people. My work here is done. I don't have any more room here to work. I'm on my way. Brethren, that is a distinction you can see there. It's in Paul's mind. That needs to be a distinction we have. There is a difference, folks, between that apostolic type frontier missionary, pioneer missionary, and an evangelist. Let's make that clear. I would just say this as we end up. This first point. Yet the next two points are a lot shorter. Brethren, this is a God-given ambition. And I want you to see something. God doesn't give us ambitions that are pointless, that are self-serving, that are self-exalting. People can be ambitious for a lot of things. I've seen this. People are very ambitious. Who was it just say? Oh, it's Kevin Williams. He was, he was telling some of us about a man that was so ambitious to become a pastor. We come across this, folks. People that are ambitious to be in positions. People, I, you know, people will come into this church. They've hardly been here two times. They're already talking about teaching. They come with an ambition. They come... People, people have a mindset before they can even serve, before they can, they can be observed by a church, they are already exerting themselves. Brethren, the God-given types of ambitions are not self-exalting, self-seeking. Now that doesn't mean that no attention will come to you as you use the gifts. But it means that the ambitions that God gives are given for the good, for the help, for the love of others. They come in some form of love. 
basically the God-given ambitions that He gives to His people are always some kind of expression of the heart of Christ Himself. Not self-exaltation. Where you see that, folks, where you see people, they're exalting themselves, exalting the sums, putting themselves forward, drawing attention to themselves. Brethren, it's highly suspect whether they have any kind of ambition that's been given to them by the Lord Himself. We aren't talking about ambitions for our own greatness. There's always some need met in a God-given holy ambition. Always. It meets people's needs. Not your own need. It meets other people's needs. These are the types of ambitions that make you want Christ named. You, you, you get that? The kind of God-given ambitions make you desire Christ be named. Not you be named. That was Paul's ambition. And I would just say this, folks. That commission is given to us. We have a responsibility to carry this out. Yes, it was Paul's ambition, but it needs to be our ambition. May God give us some. I, my desire is that God would press upon some people's hearts here that in time we are going to see. I really only have one desire to see this church grow. And that's that we might be. Let me say it's a main desire. Obviously, there are other desires that go behind this. But it has always been to see us be a base to send men and women out with this kind of ambition. To be a church that cultivates and nurtures and is able to raise up and send out ambition-filled men and women with an ambition to do men good that look at the heathen perishing, that feel like no idol, like with Hudson Taylor, no idol is going to stand in the way. You read, you read those letters? It, it was, he, he loved that girl. And you know what struck me as I was going through there? I thought, in all those chapters, her name, I didn't even see her name. It's almost like her name has been lost. Here's a young lady. Her ambition was not for China. She did not have an ambition for the perishing. And she's forgotten. Second, aid. Let me just hit this real quick. Aid. You notice it's not aid for Paul. You guys, you guys all catch that? I mean, look at verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. My second point is missionary aid. I ought to jump out to all of this right away. By missionary aid, I certainly do not mean aid that is being given by the churches to the missionary in order to support the missionary in his endeavors on the missionary field. By missionary aid, I mean money collected by the missionary from the churches, not for his own use, but for the sake of the needy. In this case, it's the poor saints at Jerusalem. Now, let me tell you something. This is what holy ambition does. I told you already, holy ambition, you see it. It's, 
It's for the good of others. It reaches out to others. It's the perishing multitudes. It's love for others. It's some kind of heartfelt expression of Christ. That is the ambition of the missionary. And you see it here. Folks, if there is any place that measures a man's real ambition in his character, it's when it comes to money. And I'll guarantee that's why Christ said as much as He said in the New Testament as He says about money. In fact, you probably know it. He speaks more about money than heaven and hell put together. He speaks more about money than He speaks about prayer. Why did He speak so much about it? Why so many illustrations that represent it and have to do with it? And so many admonishings to people and various things. And His disciples after Him picked up that theme and many places in the epistles. Why? Because that is a test of a man. That is a test. And what can we say? I mean, what we can say is this. The ambition that fueled and fired this man led him to take and give. And I would challenge you, don't talk about ambition for missions or desire for missions. Unless and until you see right here, right now, the Lord working in your life and in your heart an ambition to fill someone's needs. I'll tell you what Hudson Taylor, you know what he was doing? He was living on rice and oatmeal. Why? So that he could give the rest away. He moved purposely into the drain side neighborhood, which was poor and poverty stricken. Why? To show love to people, to reach people. If you don't have a heart to sacrifice and a heart to give, this side of the ocean. Folks, what are you going to be over there? You're going to be nothing but a stingy, miserly, self-absorbed, self-concerned missionary there. I mean, I'm telling you, God takes His God-called, ambition-filled missionaries out of this sort of stock. Isn't it amazing that as much as He longed to see those in Rome, as much as he longed to proclaim Christ where he was not named and go to Spain, he had to divert to a thousand miles there. It's, it's assumed that he was in Corinth, and that's a good assumption. He refers to Gaius. Gaius, we see in 1 Corinthians, was at, at, at Corinth. And we, he commends Phoebe to them, and it's thought Phoebe brought the letter to them. She was from Sencrea, or Sencre, which is right there next to Corinth. Um, he had to go a thousand miles to Jerusalem, a thousand miles back before then going on from there over to Rome. Now, obviously, history would tell us he probably never made it. But the fact is, 2,000 extra miles, Paul, what are you doing? You could have sent somebody yourself. You, you could have sent somebody actually in your place. Why didn't he do that? Why, why does he take so much time to raise up all this money? And you know what's amazing to me too as I, as I look at Paul's life? Think about it. Yes, it's true that he commends the Philippians for having given to him, but even there he says, I'm happy about all this, not so much because it provides my need, which it did, but he said, I'm more happy about this thing because it gives you treasure. It it's, goes to your account. Yes, it's true that, that he said that it was his right to get money from the churches, Yes, it's true that he even says to the Romans, we read it, that he hopes to go to Spain by way of them and no doubt to be somewhat in physical ways helped on his way by them. 
But you know what's very interesting? You think about it. Do you know of a single verse where Paul asked for support for himself? Brethren, has God not said He'll supply all of our need? Has God not said, share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, cover him. Don't hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call. Listen to this. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry. He will say, here I am. You know what that means? That means if we do this, we give ourselves to others constantly. Give, 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 give. When we're in need, and we say, Lord, He says, I'm going to be right there. You guys believe that? Again, He goes on to say, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. Your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Let me ask you, are we going to be like that pastor of old who put his hand on Hudson Taylor's shoulder and said, Wisen up, buddy! What are we going to do? Make God out to be a liar? Has God said? You know what? You know what God chisels out of that missionary stock? People with faith. Are we ready to trust God financially? Are we ready to invest? I'll tell you this. You know very well, some of you, you've heard the story. You've heard the testimony. One of the missionaries we support, laboring over in China, he said they tried to get that gospel to penetrate that hard surface over there, rock-solid surface of all those hard hearts of those Chinese. He said it wasn't until they poured out expressions of the love of Christ and benevolence and giving themselves. Brethren, he speaks a story there about the fact that they, there was one old wicked man over there and they tried to get the gospel into his village time after time and they were not able. Finally, there's one old man there. He developed AIDS. They brought him over to Kunming to the, to the place where, where I guess it's the only place facility in China that has an AIDS facility like that. And they brought him in. This missionary, he said, basically what you saw there, the Christians from that house church would come in and they were... They would take sponges and sponge bath this man while the nurses and the doctors would come in with suits like you wear into a nuclear reactor. But here's all these Christians. And he said that he came in there one time and he was talking to the man about his soul and it seemed like God saved that man and he reached down and he kissed that man on that scabbed and dying old man's face. He said that older brother was watching all this and he fell down. After this missionary walked out of the room, that old brother, wicked brother, fell down and said, I want to become a Christian. And the door opened. And that man died. And they preached the Gospel in that city at that funeral. And 400 people were gathered in the hot noonday sun to hear Christ proclaimed where before that there was no penetration. Brethren, if we are not loving, you that have some idea that you're going to go overseas and you're going to accomplish all this for Christ, look, if you're not pouring yourself out in sacrificial expressions right here, what do you think fired Paul to say, as much as I long to proclaim the Gospel in Spain, I'm going to go a thousand miles out of my way to take this aid over there. 
to these suffering folks over there in Jerusalem. This is the heart. This is the ambition that fires the missionary passion. Brethren, there's no substitutes for this. Why was it so important that he go? Brethren, I'll tell you this. When it came to this offering that Paul was gathering, he talks about it not just not here in Rome. He talked about it to the Corinthians too. I want you to hear what he said to them. The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission. There's the submission, the obedience of the Gentiles that Paul's talking about in Rome. He says, this offering from these Gentile churches shows the submission of the Gentiles. Can I tell you something? You know one of the reasons that this was so important to Paul? Because he believed in a Gospel that transforms people. And he said, this has to do with the Gospel. Where the Gospel is preached, Gentiles come to obedience. This is no cheap Gospel. It's not just something, well, yeah, your sins are, are forgiven, but now your life isn't transformed. You know what Paul realized? Paul realized where that Gospel came, it penetrated deep. And it turned greedy Gentiles into giving saints. They didn't hold tightly to their money anymore. It freed them to give. And he, sh I mean, I'll tell you, this mattered to Paul. I just end with this the missionary appeal. It's my third A. Ambition, aid, the missionary appeal. You see it there in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. No appeal for money. I can tell you one thing I've seen in men and women that are truly cut from that stock with a true God-given holy ambition. I can tell you this. There are men and women that long that you pray. They're not asking for your money. For, your, for possessions, for comfortable homes in faraway places full of Western accommodations. They want prayer. And I would say this, here's Paul, he wants prayer. Here's all these missionaries, they want prayer. I know missionaries, I don't think I've ever heard them mention their want of money. But they will ask you for prayer virtually every time they see you. Why? Why is Paul appealing for prayer? Why? I mean the question, why does Paul need the prayers of others? Why doesn't Paul, you're an apostle. Come on, you've got a good setting with God. You've got a good place there. Um, you know, you've been taken up to, to heaven before. Why don't you just pray on your own? Why do you need the Romans? And by the way, he doesn't just ask the Romans. He asks the Corinthians. He asks the Ephesians. He asks the Colossians, the Thessalonians for prayer. Why not just pray himself? 
In fact, you know what we know? When he says strive together with me in your prayers, he's distinctly implying that he is praying already. So if he's praying, why in the world does he need for other people to pray? You guys ever ask yourself that? Why, why does it matter so much? Here we are right on the eve of a week of prayer and fasting for missions. Does it matter? Does it really matter? Let the missionaries pray. Let me give you, let me give you a real thrick, quick three answers from the Scriptures. Hey, I don't know the fullness of the answer, but I can tell you these three things for certain. John 16.24, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Here's what I see. If one guy asks and he gets what he asked for, that guy's joy is full. But guess what? If you've got a thousand Christians in the United States praying for a man that's over in the middle of Russia and God gives. Think about it, brethren. We prayed for an entire year. God give us seven souls of children over in China. And when God gave it, did you not rejoice? I did. But guess what? If we would have let it, left it to those missionaries to pray for alone, then our joy wouldn't be full. And I can tell you the other night when I was moving that magazine around the room, I was, when I first saw that and I saw those three girls on there, I was filled with joy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there's three Tibetan girls that were, it appears, saved last year. So brethren, that our joy be full when we get to enter into these things and then get to see God do it, our joy is filled up. So there's one reason. A second one, 2 Corinthians 1.11, you also must help us by prayer. Why, Paul? Why? So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So you have many praying the blessing gets granted, and then there's lots of thanks. This has to do with the glory of God, folks. Not just with our joy, which I think He's glorified in too, but this has to do with many thanks going up. You get one guy asking for one thing, he gets that. That one guy praises God. He thanks God. When you've got a thousand Christians praying for that thing, and God gives it, now a thousand people with united voices say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. You see that? That's, that's, I'm not making that up. You guys all see that, right? How about one more? Ephesians 6.18 Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. Brethren, I think it's to keep us aware. Watching. Isn't that what it says? To that end, keep alert. Keep alert. When we pray, brethren, it helps us enter into a sense of the spiritual battle. The spirit, Brethren, I'm telling you, these missionaries, these pioneer missionaries, what in the world are they doing? They are going in word. They are going in deed. They are going in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the mighty Spirit of God into places where Satan has a hold on men and women. He keeps them steeped in ancient darkness. They have been believing these lies for centuries, for thousands of years, and they're in there, and these demons are in deep. And if you don't think there aren't principalities and powers behind Hinduism and Catholicism and Islam, keeping poor people in that darkness, satanic darkness, 
And here's Christ going forth conquering and to conquer. And He does it because He's with us to the end of the age. And He works through us to bring the Gentiles to obedience. To proclaim reconciliation. We are the ambassadors. We call out to the world, be reconciled to God. Brethren, we need to stay alert. There is a warfare. The devil is real. And I'll tell you this, he's he wants to destroy us. He wants to shut us down. He wants to stop us from sending forth missionaries like this. He wants to put an end to it. He wants to keep His domains untouched. And He knows where God's people are praying. They are seriously entering into the battle. You go to a church, folks, where they don't pray, they don't take this battle seriously. It's only when missionaries realize the opponent they're up against, they're going to be frantic for prayer. One missionary we support said this, Hear me, brethren. Having been on the receiving ends of collective, intensified intercession, I can assure you that that strange and mysterious phenomenon of you gathering together praying in this place produces a spiritual sensation across the earth. There have been times when my wife has turned to me and said, what day is it? I said, what do you mean what day is it? It's Thursday. Thursday morning. She said, I knew it. Let me tell you this. Thursday morning where those people are is Wednesday evening here. She said, I knew it. I said, what do you mean? She says, there's power. There's peace. There's a sensible sense of God's presence. There's a lifting of the cloud. There's a removal of unbelief. There's a fresh confidence and conviction. I have seen the immediate supernatural influence of the prayers coming out of your mouth on Wednesday night to have a spiritual, supernatural impact on Thursday morning. But hear me. It's war. Do you want to enter the battle? Or do you want to play around? And I'll tell you this, I think one other reason that Paul would ask others to pray for him is because of a truth that James sets forth. The effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. He knows this. There are some people that God has just given a faith and God has given a gift to to lay hold on Him. He wants people like that crying out for Him. Things like that happen. They're going along and in the midst of all that oppression, they suddenly have a clarity. The cloud lifts. What is all that about? There is a spiritual battle, folks. And one of the things that happens when we pray is we keep alert. William Carey said, I will descend into the very jaws of hell if you will hold me there with the ropes of prayer. May God help us, brethren. May God give us these kind of spiritual lungs. Buy up the time. Brethren, eternity hastens. And we are supporting missionaries that have as much as said to us, I will go down and descend into these very jaws of hell if you, back there at home, us being one of these churches, will hold the ropes of prayer. God give us missionaries like that and God give us praying churches like that. And Brethren, we can't play around. We don't have time. Eternity does hasten. We are the ambassadors. Brethren, let us be faithful. The endeavor now to enter in on a week of prayer and fasting. Please, enter in. 
If you don't know about all of our missionaries and you want to find out something about them so that you can pray about them, you ask and you ask somebody here. Ask Sister Connie. She's, she's got some stuff she could probably email you right now. Some of the personal requests from some of these missionaries themselves. God help us, brethren. God help us. You're dismissed. <laughs>